Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is about hair. It's about restoring your hair if you've lost it, preventing hair loss, slowing hair loss, understanding where you're at in your hair journey. My guest is Dr. Alan Bowman, who is the leading authority when it comes to hair restoration and preventing hair loss. And then the restoration part, of course, which is what to do if you've already lost your hair, what are your options? So this episode is not just geared to men because women lose hair for a variety of reasons as well. So men, women, buckle up. You're going to learn a lot in this episode about why we lose hair and what we can do about it and all of the amazing techniques that they employ at Bowman Medical to understand why you're losing your hair, where you're at, and then to track your progress when you start different types of interventions. And the interventions from Bowman Medical can run anything from using a different shampoo and supplements right up to surgery to replace hair follicles. So I'm going to let Dr. Bowman tell you all about it. If you are looking to connect with Dr. Bowman himself, you can go to bowmanmedical.com and he does do virtual consults and his team will be happy to help you. If you want to go to that website and buy some of the amazing products that they have, I'm personally using their shampoo and conditioner right now. They've got an incredible biotin supplement as well. You can go to the link hai.rs forward slash Nat Nidham. So that's hairs with a period in the middle, hai.rs forward slash Nat Nidham, and you'll get a discount on anything that you purchase on that website. So thank you so much for being here. Totally appreciate you guys. If you're trying to get in touch with me, you can go to my website, natnidham.com. You can send me a message through there, or you can join my new community on Mighty Networks called BSP Community, which you can also learn about on the website. We do amazing things in there. I do live Q&As every month. We do peptide deep dives. We have experts come on live and do Q&As. So in December, we had Caleb Greer from episode 129 on terzepatide, I believe it was. That was a huge one. And all of those expert Q&As, whether it's with me or someone else, are recorded. So even if you missed the live, if you join the group, you get access to the recordings. And we do lots more other stuff that's really exciting in the group. Learn about it on the website. Otherwise, you can go to Facebook and to the Optimizing Superhuman Performance Group. That one's free. It's big. It's a little bit wild and crazy, but it's kind of a fun place as well. So I will leave you with that. We're going to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we're going to dive right into the episode. Thanks again for being here and enjoy the show. Hey folks, just a quick minute to thank our sponsor for this episode, Oxford HealthSpan, makers of Primadine, the only spermidine supplement that I personally use and recommend to my clients and family. Spermidine has earned a permanent spot on my longevity stack. Research has shown that spermidine positively impacts six of the nine hallmarks of aging, including protecting your DNA from damage as you age. Regular users also experience visible results after just one to three months, including better hair, skin, nails, and deeper sleep. 
I choose Primadine because it is the only spermidine supplement on the market that is free of any additives or excipients while including a prebiotic to feed your own bacteria to make more of your own spermidine. And now Primadine also has a gluten-free version. To try Primadine, go to primadine.com and use discount code BIONAT15 to save 15% off your purchase. And now let's get back to the episode. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Dr. Alan Bowman, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to me. Great to be with you, Natalie. Great to be here. Yeah, no, it was great to meet you in person. Actually, we've met met in person twice now, right? Once in, uh, where was it? West Palm Beach. Biohackers Live. Biohackers Live. And then at the biohacking conference in LA. So That's right. So always a pleasure to meet you. And I'm always wish that I had, okay, I wish I had more time to pick his brain a little more. And so now here we are, we've got a whole podcast to fill. So Great. yeah, and you're in this incredible business of hair restoration. I think, you know, is that the best term for it? Hair restoration or what would be the best terminology that you would, you know, it's Bowman Medical, which is, you know, which really speaks to the fact that you're approaching this not just from a lifestyle kind of stopgap perspective, but from a medical perspective. But is hair Correct. restoration the right term? Yes. Well, I'm an MD and yeah. I'm a board certified hair restoration physician. That's the American Board of Hair Restoration Surgery. And Bauman Medical is my practice that I've had for over 25 years here in Boca Raton, Florida. And today we have what I would call like a hair hospital. And so we cater to anything that has to do with scalp health and hair growth. And so a lot of folks maybe in the old days used to consider themselves a hair transplant surgeon. And, you know, of course, that's what I'm primarily trained as. And that's the bulk of what we do here in the practice, literally hundreds of procedures every year. But I do see 1,500 patients per year. And many of those patients may never, ever need a hair transplant. And nice. so that's the treatments uh, that we offer to help protect and enhance your own living and growing hair so that you can help avoid a transplant or maybe not need as many of them as you go down along into the future. That's amazing. And I love the preventative aspect to that, right? Because, you know, the hair transplant, it's kind of like the final frontier. It's the last, it's the last stop on the, on the road. I actually have a client who had a hair transplant procedure with you this year. Oh, cool. And again, like you mentioned something, I don't know if it was before the podcast or here, it wasn't about plugs, you know, like he didn't, he didn't look like he had a bunch of pokey things. It was a very, very interesting and, and didn't look anything like what I, what I would have expected it to look like. Yeah. That's the most common misconception about what I do as a profession really is that people think hair transplants are pluggy and painful, that they look weird or unusual. And that was true maybe like 20 something years ago or more, but today's technology is completely different. So uh, we are moving around literally as little as a single follicle, one at a time. I mean, that's what the microsurgical loops are for, right? So that we can graft those hair follicles one at a time and also use artistry to create something that looks normal and natural. So I mean, just to jump right in for you, I mean, a hairline shouldn't be flat and straight uh, and hair sticking out like porcupine uh, (laughs) spikes. You know, I mean, that's not what a a hairline looks like. Mother Nature doesn't create hairlines like that. So 
my mentors always taught me to be a student of nature and to look at natural hairlines, look at the patterns that mother nature produces on the scalp and recreate that surgically if you can. And of course, that's what drew me into the field of hair restoration over 25 years ago uh, when I was in my plastic surgery training in Manhattan. I really didn't know much about hair transplants and I was just like everybody else. I thought it was pluggy and painful and why would you even bother? Yeah, yeah. Until I met that patient who had had the work done yeah. And I was unable to tell. He oh. was thrilled that he fooled the doctor, so to speak. No and kidding. We entered into a really interesting conversation from there. From a layman's point of view, he told me about his hair transplant. I was amazed at his results at that time. I'd never seen one that good. And the other thing that struck me was how his life was changed from mm-hmm. the procedure. And that I already knew that, you know, cosmetic enhancement could make a big impact on someone's life and how they perceive themselves. And of course, in the biohacking realm, we're always trying to work on the inside, make sure that we feel good, that we have more years in our life and more life in our years. But you know, the outward expression of that is important too, because our skin and our hair is an important barometer of how we're doing on the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's such an important point. The the whole psychology around maintaining a decent head of hair, which I guess, you know, isn't to say that, you know, men, there are definitely men out there who choose the no hair look like being bald as as their look and they're confident and they're happy and that works for them. So I think there's a lot to be said for that as well. But, you know, to have and I think that the options today available to people who are trying to either reclaim their hair or preserve their hair, and I guess that's two different areas in a way, um, are so much broader than they used to be. But but before we get into that, I think, you know, just to position the podcast a little bit, this is as relevant for men as for women. And I would love to talk a little bit about some of the different reasons why men, I mean, we know men, male pattern, male pattern baldness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everybody knows about that, right? Like, I mean, my dad, I, it was a genetic thing at a very young age, like in his early twenties, started to lose his hair rather aggressively. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, but for women, it, it's a different, it's a whole different set of circumstances, really, even Correct. though there is androgenic hair loss as well, which has to do with male hormones. So maybe sure. you want to kind of I kind of butchered that a little bit, but maybe you No, <laughs> no worries. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, male and female pattern hair loss are the primary things that we treat. And we know that there's probably 80 million Americans out there who are struggling with some kind of a hair problem. Uh, most of them are men, but a lot of them are women. There's about 30 million American women out there who are struggling with hair thinning and hair loss. But it's, it's almost like a hidden condition because, as you said, you can see from across the room a guy's receding hairline or a bald spot or if they choose to shave their head, a personal decision, obviously, to let go of their hair, no worries. Um, and there's a lot of socially acceptable folks, uh, socially ac- acceptable icons, if you will, um, that people look, folks look up to uh, when it comes to that. You know, uh, it could be, you know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson or yeah. uh, whomever is your your hair hero, right? But for women with hair loss, there's no socially acceptable you yeah. know female icon. I mean, you're not going to like run out and go look like Sinead O'Connor right away. Like if that's mm-hmm. your hair hero, you've got some problems. And um, you know Jada Pinkett Smith obviously you know uh, took a clipper to her hair. Uh, you know for whatever reason, you know maybe we know, maybe we don't. But um, you know, obviously, she was upset about her hair and had done a lot to kind of torture her hair over the years, pretty publicly. You know, with different styles and colors and and straightening and 
and chemicals and heat and things like that that could certainly damage her hair and make you want to just shave it all off, uh, yeah. you know, unfortunately. But for women with female pattern hair loss, it goes undetected from across the room, but women notice it in their brush, right? They see mm-hmm. the shedding that's happening. They notice the change in their ponytail volume. They might see those subtle signs, like they have to maybe change their part line to yeah. get more coverage, right? Because female hair loss happens right down the middle. So in the frontal zone, instead of a big recession of the hairline, like in men, with the hairline is usually pretty stable in the center, but they lose density diffusely in the middle zone. And then it's not until a little bit later on with age that sometimes we see some recession of the temple areas. And that can be uh, really disconcerting to women. And that's one of the more common areas that we actually have to transplant to restore more youthful and more feminine frame to the face. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, but there's, uh, for men, you know, just in terms of the triggers, we know it's hereditary. There's a sensitivity to the androgen DHT, dihydrotestosterone, which is a metabolite of testosterone. Um, and that's the trigger for the miniaturization that occurs over time. But there are other influences on hair, and women especially have what I would consider more sensitive hair. So mm-hmm. 40% of our patients at Bauman Medical are women, and they come in with the concerns of thinning or shedding, loss of volume, maybe a little recession of the hairline, maybe thinning up top and more scalp shining through, and they're doing camouflage techniques, changing their style, changing the curl, changing their coverage, and so forth to compensate. Um, at that moment, and it's just in the early stages, hopefully. But if it's gotten to be more severe, then we have to take more severe action. But we right. do a complete diagnosis to figure out what's going on. You know, what are the other influences besides hereditary causes that could be influencing the hair follicle? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So for women, what would you say the main drivers are of hair loss? Because I know that, you know, autoimmune conditions could be a major issue. Thyroid imbalances can contribute. Even diet, like poor digestion or not not eating enough protein or not breaking it down. But what are the things that you're seeing are the most prevalent for women? And, you know, if somebody corrects some of those things, like the autoimmune or the thyroid or the diet, do we see the hair coming back or like at what point does it become a problem that has to be solved in your office versus a lifestyle change? Right. So it's really important to get a complete history because we know that everything is like painted on the canvas of the DNA, right? And so um, your DNA tells you whether you're going to be susceptible to certain things or not. And, you know, that's the main driver of androgenetic alopecia is the sensitivity to the male hormones that you may be having in your body. And all women have those hormones. But hair follicles are extremely sensitive. First of all, they're highly complex, right? They, they sit in the scalp and you think that these are tiny little things. Obviously, the hair you see is dead, but the follicles are under the scalp. Think of it like a 3D printer that's making the hair fiber. And it requires m- metabolism to make that happen. And hair follicles are one of the most highly metabolic cell populations in the body. Hmm. So think of it, God forbid, you needed cancer therapy. It knocks out your GI tract, your bone marrow your immune system, and your hair. Why? Because those are highly metabolic, highly replicating cell populations. And so as the the things that you mentioned, like poor nutrition, could certainly impact the hair follicle. We know if you're protein deficient, um, a lot of patients come in and they're on strict diets like vegan, vegetarian diets, and they're not getting enough protein to build good quality hair. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a very important concern. You need to make sure you're, you have adequate protein. There's stress, obviously, in the day and age yes. of a global pandemic and economic meltdown and uh, political unrest across the world. You know, we got plenty of reasons to be stressed out. And so that's why, uh, of course, mindfulness and meditation is important. <laughs> but, um, you know, stress as a cortisol effect, right? Um, you know, the prolonged exposure to cortisol can shut these follicles down. And we know that just from laboratory experiments. The quickest way to turn off a follicle is to put some cortisol in the Petri dish. Wow. And so the, actually the follicle that's stressed makes its own cortisol. So we want to take a look at that. What you do to your hair from the outside, pulling or torturing it, you know, with heat and chemicals <laughs> and things like that. You know, these things definitely have an effect on hair follicle function as even just UV radiation, ultraviolet exposure, just being outside can degrade the follicles over time really? and disrupt the hair. Yeah. Disrupt the skin, disrupt the hair and make it more difficult to grow good quality hair. And so we want, we want to look at all of those things. Uh, but as you said, hormone imbalance, for example, uh, the most common hormone imbalance in women of childbearing age is PCOS, polycystic uh, ovarian syndrome. And one of the most common symptoms is hair problems, hair loss, mm-hmm. as well as hair growth in other places. Like yeah. they could get hirsutism on the face. They could have weight gain. They have acne. These are androgen sensitivities uh, that are out of whack. Right, mm-hmm. either androgen levels or androgen sensitivity that throw off these side effects and symptoms of PCOS. And so we know that that's a common factor. There's the androgens uh, when it comes to female hair loss. But you mentioned perhaps thyroid and inflammation, um, changes in the female hormones, even after childbirth can trigger a shed. You oh, can yeah. sometimes see it, uh, you know, perimenopause, menopause, postmenopausal. That's the time that most women. Uh, experience the hair problems. And these genetic tendencies are revealed during those times. Nice. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about pregnancy, because usually quite often during pregnancy, women have this beautiful head of hair, right? Like I think the hormonal environment is such that, and they're anabolic, right? They're building. And so you get this beautiful head of hair and then post- delivery, there's often like kind of like a rebound effect where there's this massive shed. But I think for the most part, you know, in in a woman who's healthy and who's able to recover well from her from childbirth and is able to take care of herself as well as her baby, there's usually a recovery on the other side of that, right? As long as there's not a lasting like last, and I mean, one thing that goes south, I think a lot in pregnancy is thyroid, thyroid takes a massive hit, it doesn't get diagnosed you know, people expect people to feel tired and whatnot. And then, you know, then I'm sure the hair loss is sustained. Even worse. Yeah. yeah. Even, even worse. Um, you know, and there's other metabolic syndromes that occur, you know, could potentially occur during pregnancy as well. But you're right. Most women are growing amazing hair during pregnancy. You know, then they pop the baby out and boom, six weeks to 12 weeks later, there's a massive shed. It happens yeah. super fast and it's scary. Um, most women who are healthy, as you say, can rebound from that quite easily. But what I see are those that don't. And, you know, that's the segment of the population that we end up treating because if we've given it enough time and the follicles are just simply not bouncing back, uh, a lot of women come in and they say, you know what, ever since that second child or, you know, whatever, ever since that time, my hair's never been the same. And so Mm -hmm. that's a common thing that I hear in my consultations as we're digging through their medical history. And that's one of the things that I'd like to do. I like to take about an hour with patients to really do a deep dive into their 
nutritional status, not just is there hair loss in the family, you know, what's their history of, of hair loss risk, what's their hair styling regimen. Mm-hmm. And there are certain ethnic populations that, you know, just need to do more to torture their hair to get it to do what they want it to do than others. And, uh, you know, sleep wake cycles and all of those things that, that we work on, you know, and again, the, the stress level that's, that's been kind of pervasively high and yeah. got higher recently. Um, yeah, no kidding. Certainly didn't help the situation, you know, at overall health. Yeah, actually, you know what, why don't we talk about, and, and this I think will apply to men and women. I want to talk also about men and the, the other reasons why men lose hair. But, but let's, you know, the elephant in the room, the COVID elephant in the room, which is so many people, even who go get through COVID quite easily, seemingly easily, notice that two or three months after they've recovered, there's this big shed that happens. And so are you seeing that? And what do you think is driving it? And do people typically recover on their own from that? Or do they need some kind of intervention to to assist the recovery? Yeah. So Natalie, I've seen over a thousand COVID-related hair loss patients in the practice over the past two years. And it can be very devastating. And honestly, to me, it was not surprising because we knew the Spanish flu of 1918 uh, was really the first time that we saw post-febrile telogen effluvium appear in the medical literature. And so we always knew years before and years ago that if you had a high fever, typically, or you were fighting off some kind of an infection, there's something going on, this inflammatory process in your body, and you're going to have some shedding that's going to occur from that, usually a little bit down the road, let's call it a month and a month or two. And so this is not unexpected. Um, the amount of folks that come in who had a mild case of COVID and had severe shedding just blew my mind. Really? It was incredible. And, uh, you know, telogen effluvium is the, the fancy name that we use medically to describe a shedding phase. And the amount of telogen effluvium was just off the charts during COVID. And you can imagine, even if you didn't catch COVID, uh, but you were locked down, shut out, you couldn't go to special events and things like that with your family and you're losing, you know, social connections, that's a very stressful time as well. So that's the lockdowns were compounding the stress as well as the infections. It's been a nightmare out there. Mm -hmm. And then don't get me started on the dysregulation of mRNA, uh, you know, from the artificial mRNA vaccinations, you know, we know the spike protein now is what dysregulates the immune system. I've had a huge number of patients that have come in who had stabilized alopecias, like say autoimmune alopecias that were stable for many, many years, maybe a decade or more. And then all of a sudden, whether it be COVID or vaccination or what have you, they have a trigger. Now they have patchy hair loss or severe hair loss happening. One of my colleagues had a little bit of alopecia areata on his you know, leg for many years that came and came and went and got vaccinated and boom, it turned into alopecia totalis, which is the loss of all the hair on the top of his head and his eyebrows and everything. So um, it's a pretty serious thing. Is it autoimmune related? Probably has a severe severe situation there. We've heard of a lot of uh, Guillain-Barre triggers and things like that from vaccinations and um, I also think that there's some dysregulation at the level of the microvasculature as well, because we see all these cardiovascular effects, right? Mm-hmm. We see mm-hmm. young men, you know, keeling over, dropping dead on the soccer field and the football field in numbers that we've never seen before in the history uh, of these sports. And so these young athletes, Olympic athletes, you know, dying doing what they love to do. Um, 
uh, in a much greater number than ever before. And so who knows? Uh, but I think we're going to find out that there's some other effects that we just didn't count on. And, uh, you know, if you disrupt the, the microcirculation to the scalp, you can bet you're going to have some hair loss from that. For sure. No question, uh, because many of our treatments are trying to boost that microcirculation. And, uh, you know, certainly COVID and, and spike proteins and mRNA can do all of that to you. Wow. So then what's the end? Like, are you able to help those people? Are you able to help them recover their hair? I mean, well, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, hopefully the follicles are still there. They're not dead and gone. They're not beyond repair unless they're maybe at the tail end of a male or female pattern hair loss process. You know, we can boost those follicles. So there's a lot of ways to do that. Yeah, we want to do everything nutritionally and nutraceutically first to decrease that inflammation in the body. So maybe we're looking at curcumin, turmeric, things like that. We're reducing stress with ashwagandha. And we're looking at sleep-wake cycles. Get that rest. Get that you know deep sleep going for regeneration and repair in the body. Let's cool everything down. And then you know there are a lot of new treatments. I mean, literally just within the past year, we have a new treatment specifically for shedding that uh, you know, we never had before. It's a trans-epidermal trans delivery of peptide proteins specifically for hair growth and shedding, uh, to, to blunt the shedding. And so that's been working very well. Other regenerative medicine techniques have worked very well for the shedding phase, like PRP. Yeah. Uh, and these things that have anti-inflammatory effects, like red light therapy and so forth, you know, yeah. taking care of that inflammation and then adding in other therapies like medicinal treatments, perhaps minoxidil or others, uh, to really stimulate the follicle and to boost the follicle. So there's lots of ways to resuscitate growth if you catch it early enough. Right. So you're basically yeah. at save the follicle first. Uh, yeah, we've got to like preserve like, that follicle. So because once the follicle's gone, that's when we're looking at the transplant. So yeah. you said so the environment, really, it's really the environment of the follicle. You know, we call it the niche, right? Because yeah. the niche is where the, the follicle lives within the skin. And there's a you know, the component of the fibroblast, which is the skin around the follicle. And then there's an adipose component, which is just below the follicle that has the energy delivery system. And then there's nerve endings and blood vessels and sweat glands and sebum glands, you know, sebaceous glands and such. And even a, even a muscle, you know, that pulls the hair follicle when you get cold or when you're, uh, you know, yeah. uh, emotionally aroused. And so those are all of the things that are affecting the hair and, and the scalp in those areas. And uh, we've got to try to pr preserve and protect that environment and then really target the follicles so that we can get some growth going. So you mentioned the adipose layer. Is that one of the contributing factors? I could think of others of people who lose a lot of weight who then lose their hair. Now there's going to be they're not eating enough protein, they're not eating enough, they're stressed, there's inflammation, like all the other reasons. But is there is there is there an, a level of, of fat loss where that adipose layer, which I guess is a what you're describing it a little bit as a repository of energy for that follicle um, gets affected? Yeah, we don't really know exactly what that relationship is, but uh, I, I think we have some clues. So we know yeah. that very restrictive diets, um, whether you're doing long fasting, uh, time and even intermittent fasting for uh, long periods. Uh, I do a five day water fast and people who do that routinely can often have some shedding phase. If you have, again, we mentioned, you know, vegan, vegetarian, obviously there's some, some protein issues there, maybe some other things that are going on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, res very restrictive diets or even, you know, folks who have had bariatric surgery, which is surgery yes. to lose weight, you know, they lose a lot of hair because they're losing weight fast. So is it depleting the adipose tissue at the scalp? I don't know necessarily that we have that answer, mm -hmm. but I will tell you 
that if you look at the research that was done well over 20 years ago now, we know that there are growth factors and gene expression that are, that's happening in the adipose tissue that contributes to turning on or turning off the hair follicles. Huh. So there's communication there. That's the niche, if you will. So yeah. not just communication up and down the follicle from the stem cell center to the dermal papilla, which is where the, the proliferating progenitor cells are, mm -hmm. but um, also from those areas in the local zone where we see the, uh, the fibroblasts and the adipose, all of those contribute as well to the signaling of the hair follicle, turning follicles on and off. It's amazing that every hair follicle has its own little, and like, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, there's like millions of hair follicles here. Well, 150,000. Sorry, 150,000. It's like a good, like there's a lot, right? And each one has its little. So there's a biblical saying, you know, like every hair on your head is numbered or something like that. You is know? it really? <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, something from the Bible. I, I miss that. Now you said a magic word to this particular audience earlier that I think everybody, if I don't ask you about this, they're all going to be on me about, well, why didn't you ask? Um, you said you talked about TED Tech and you mentioned peptides. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of the audience that listens to this podcast is like all about the peptides. And I know that the first time that I heard anybody talking about peptides, one of the uh -huh. things he talked about were a number of peptides that could be used to to stimulate or preserve or, or recover hair. And there was, and let me see if I can remember, there was uh, zinc thymulin, there's GHK, there's PTD DPM or DPMTB. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I got all those letters in the right order. Mm -hmm. I want to say there, there's probably- Don't forget a TB4. TB4, I, I get or zinc thymulin. TB500. Or TB500. Are those the peptides you're talking about? Or is that, because I know that a lot of people in the groups are like, okay, they ran out. Oh, and valproic acid was another element in there. So they sure. ran out and bought a bunch of this stuff and start, and I don't know if they were, you know, if they were using it systemically or trying to somehow get it into their scalp. And for the most part, the results were underwhelming. Hmm. So well, it sounds to thing. me like there was a piece missing to, to the yeah, puzzle. Yeah, for sure. So um, first of all, the history of copper peptides in the world of hair restoration, for me, uh, in my practice at Foundler Medical, goes back to 1999. Nice. When we were doing more invasive types of procedures, we used copper GHK, that's copper tripeptide, as a wound healing agent. Mm -hmm. And so we used to dispense to every single patient a kit. It was basically looked like a toiletry kit, but it had gauze that was soaked in the copper peptide that they would use on their scalp. It had gel for the old-fashioned linear scars that were uh, that we were that we were harvesting with, and also sprays that you would spray on the scalp in that immediate post-operative phase. And so copper tripeptide had a lot of research for skin rejuvenation and skin repair. Mm -hmm. And so we've been using that. We were using that for a long, long time. And then it kind of faded away a little bit as we got into the more minimally invasive style of transplants, you know, no scalpel, no stitch, single follicle and follicular unit extraction process. You know, we didn't need as much in that, you know, as we moved to that technology in terms of wound healing, you know, we stopped doing our hyperbaric so often, things like that, only special case. So, but today, uh, what we were talking about just prior to getting on the show is a technology called TED. And so TED stands for transepidermal delivery. And this mm -hmm. is a brand new technology that was developed in Israel, studied overseas, released in the U.S. in stealth mode, and researched in Chicago for maybe two years, even during the pandemic, in hundreds and hundreds of patients. And what they found is that the use of ultrasound, ultrasonic delivery system, this ultrasound delivery device, if you will, 
disrupts the stratum corneum at the level of the skin. And so the stratum corneum is that moisture barrier of the skin. It's a very small layer, but it's the reason why you can get out of the shower and not look like a sponge. <laughs> it basically, <laughs> it's you know, important. like all blown up. Right? So it takes a while for that to happen. You have to be in the shower for a while uh, or in the Hudson River, as they say in the, uh, in the old days. Yeah. But the point is, is that that moisture barrier is like, uh, it's almost like a brick and mortar. So it has mm. the cells and the lipid uh, uh, layers that are really, really tight. And so it blocks the absorption of anything. You want to try to put medication on, peptides, whatever. Everything that you put on the top of your skin is basically being blocked mostly mm. mm-hmm. by that stratum corneum. But so ultrasonic uh, sound waves, which are painless, by the way, uh, these these uh, high frequency sound waves basically sounds a little bit like a jewelry cleaner. If you've ever used a jewelry cleaner, yeah. or for those who have ultrasonic toothbrushes, you hear that kind of almost like a ringing. That's what ultrasonic delivery is like. And what we do is we apply that to the skin to disrupt the stratum corneum, and then we use a serum that comes with the device and drive it in. Okay. And so everybody wants to know when that first technology came out and, the, and their hair growth results were being presented at the American Academy of Dermatology. And uh, I spoke to one of the original researchers, Dr. Lady Dye up in Chicago and got some feedback from her patients. And uh, what everybody wanted to know, well, what's in the serum? Because that's what everybody, you know- What's the magic what, juice? What's yeah. the magic juice? And so we did a deep dive into it and it contained copper peptide. It contained uh, a thymosin beta-4 derivative which we know is great for hair growth. It also has VEGF and fibroblast growth factor. So it has a lot of growth factors, a lot of peptides in there. And I think the magic answer to your question is getting it down into the skin. Right. So if you could do that without a needle, hey, that's awesome. And so Mm -hmm. that's TED. So TED hair restoration treatment is transepidermal delivery with ultrasonic waves of sound. Patients will come in for that treatment three times, separated by a month. So every month for three months. And the, tr- the treatment has no downtime, no recovery period whatsoever. Uh, it takes about 30 to 40 minutes, depending on the length of your hair. And we're getting hair growth from that and, and decreased shedding. Wow. So it's really, really interesting. The data is still coming out. We don't have all the answers. We don't know how long it lasts yet, like mm-hmm. we do for our PRP. Or like you might other- need to repeat it or something. Yeah. 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 So we'll, we'll, you know, this is we're at the very early stage of this super exciting technology. This is going to be a game changer for the industry for sure. Yeah. Well, because I guess the other way to disrupt the stratum corneum, which is what people more commonly use, which is more invasive and unpleasant, it would be like uh, microneedling, right? Because right. you get exactly a lot of products out there require microneedling, which of course, if you don't have hair is one thing to do a roller, but otherwise you kind of have to use this. I've seen a stamp being used because yeah. you start rolling things through your hair and you're going to pull your hair out. Like you're going to pull out the good guys to save the other guys. Correct. So, I mean, we demonstrated the TED device at the biohacking conference. Uh, We were running that thing all day long. Dave got his uh, TED treatment while we were there. But when I gave the presentation on biohacking baldness, uh, questions came up regarding microneedling. And microneedling does work. It's just, it, it can be tricky to do it on your own. Exactly like mm-hmm. what you said. Is the, is the roller going to get caught in your hair? Um, are you using the correct depth? And so when we do microneedling, we do it with a professional device. And so there's mm-hmm. a true medical device, you know, not something you're going to buy on Amazon or get some from China or whatever. This is a device that's specifically made for microneedling the skin. It has a fine-tuned adjustment for depth. It has a hermetically sealed 
cartridge that's one-time use, disposable, so you know it's sharp and just sterile. Yeah. You know, you don't have to worry about cleaning it and all that business. And then we do that at the very end of our PRP treatments. Okay. So after we've done our injections with our PRP, I mean, we're skipping around a little bit, but after we do our injections <laughs> and do our business with PRP, we actually use another growth factor serum with microneedling as the finisher of our PRP treatment. Nice. Yeah, but I, I caution patients to do that at home. You know, please be careful with anything sharp on your skin because yeah. if you create too much trauma, too much damage, I mean, don't go to, I mean, uh, the craziest things you'll see on YouTube, right? I mean, the guys are bleeding all over the oh, place. It's like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. So don't do, they're trying not to do that because too much inflammation is going to cause a lot of loss there. Yeah, yeah. So be careful, you know. And I, you I can was, almost, I've heard like you can almost, I mean, I've, I've spoken to even dermatologists who don't love these home microneedling devices because they're like, you know, you're tearing the skin. You're actually, you're going beyond the micro trauma into trauma. Yeah. And so now there's, yeah, you're going to build collagen, but you're going to end up with some scars or yeah. God knows what else. Like so it's not just the penetration of the serum, I guess, is the point, but also that little tiny micro trauma that you're providing to the skin with the microneedling device that's triggering the repair. Mm -hmm. But there's a sweet spot. If you do too little, you don't get that response. If you get the proper endpoint, which is, you know, that little bit of redness in the skin, maybe with the microscope, you can see a little bit of punctate bleeding, but not a lot. If you go overboard and you're ripping or tearing the skin, then you're going to into the damage category and you're going to have the opposite of the effect that you want. Yeah. Not a good plan. No. So that's why we always recommend microneedling under microscopic magnification with these sophisticated tools that are sterile, that are finely tuned to exactly your skin depth that you need. Yeah. And an operator who understands how to do that. So remember, your operator for your skin, for the you know, for your face in the in the medi spa, may not necessarily be a good operator for your scalp either. No, so you know, yeah. there's there's a difference there. And the scalp treatment folks are very highly trained. Like I have a, a full time certified trichologist and an esthetician, and my other team member is a PA and, a, and an NP. And so these folks are all highly trained as to what to do for the scalp. That's yeah. different from what to do for the skin. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Um, okay, so let's back up a little. Like We're going to kind of do a little backup and then we're coming back. So yeah, let's, for sure. Because we talked about women and the causes for hair loss for women. Let's move over to the men now. Everybody knows male pattern baldness. We know that, you know, in some men, they convert their testosterone to DHT. There's a sensitivity in the follicle. The follicle dies. The hair goes and boom, there you go. You get, you end up with like that bald baldness at the top and the, and the crown of hair. Good job, Natalie. You got it all covered. That's it. Well, what, no, I got next? that one. I'm just, but, I'm just but what are you seeing for men also? Like, like what else are you seeing in, 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 the, in the guy's world? <laughs> so your description is 100% right. It's the sensitivity to DHT that you inherit and how fast uh, you lose your hair is dependent on that sensitivity and the levels of DHT. So we see it. It can happen anytime after puberty. You have a receding hairline, thinning in the crown. Once the follicle is miniaturizing, time is ticking, right? So we say time is follicles because if you don't act at the earliest possible time, the follicle gets into a phase where it's so degenerated that it's beyond repair. And so there's a certain hair caliber and length that tells us that the follicle just cannot rejuvenate. And we look at that under the microscope. We have AI powered microscopes that actually can tell us the exact hair density in the area. It quantifies how many hairs are in a certain category of thickness, 90 microns and over, 60 to 90, 30 to 60, less than 30 microns. Those are categorizations of how healthy that hair fiber is. 
And that we can infer from that how healthy the hair follicle is. So we do those diagnostics and then we figure out, well, what are the therapies that we need? Antiandrogen therapy is still the mainstay of therapy. So every male converts testosterone to DHT um, and DHT being the bad guy, mm-hmm. antiandrogen therapy is still the mainstay of treatment. So treatments like finasteride or stronger therapies like dutasteride, which may be the strongest treatment that we have for male pattern baldness, are very commonly discussed first. But, but even though they have amazing benefit, there's also some risk. Yeah, like doesn't that affect their their physical all the phys- the physical need for testosterone? Well, let's. Or talk is it about just that. blocking so, the conversion of testosterone to DHT, or is it? Yes. Okay. Yes. So um, testosterone is converted to DHT by five alpha reductase enzyme, and there yeah. are three types now. We know the type two type is kind of the you know the main road to DHT. It's like the super highway, and that's what finasteride blocks. So if you take finasteride, you're inhibiting the enzyme that's producing the DHT, and your DHT levels in the serum go down about sixty percent on average. Okay. And that's enough to produce 90% success in patients. So 90% of men on finasteride will have a positive result. That means what? That means that two out of three are get some regrowth and five out of six are going to basically stop losing hair for the long run. That's pretty good, pretty good numbers. What's the downside? (laughs) Downside is so, and also we know that it doesn't affect the regular testosterone levels. In fact, testosterone can actually bump up up. a little bit because you're blocking that breakdown. But lowering the DHT has an effect on the sexual functioning in men in 2% of patients. And so mm. decreased libido, sex drive, and difficulty maintaining a heart erection, mild ED can occur 2% of the time. Oh, and decreased ejaculate volume as well. So what happens if that occurs? Well, the good news is that you can stop the medication and the medication is going to be out of your system in a week. And so theoretically, you should be able to rebound from that pretty quickly and then decide from there, what do we need to do if you're in that mm-hmm. one in the unlucky group there? But 98% of folks have no reported side effects and they do very, very well on the medication. Wow. And this now, is oral finasteride? This is systemic, right? Because is there not is a, a topical? Yeah, sorry. Well, let's talk about that. So the FDA <laughs> yeah. approved version is the oral version. That's about a mil- It's a milligram. That's the FDA approved version. With compounding pharmacy, we can change that dose. So if you happen to be super sensitive to a milligram, we can change the frequency of the dose, of course, but also the quantity. So we can lower it, um, take it less frequently but we can also now compound it into a topical version. So topical finasteride is available, which works almost, in my opinion, almost as good as the oral version. And we combine that with minoxidil, which is the other FDA-approved medication. So that's a nice option for folks who want to avoid the risk of systemic side effects. It virtually eliminates the risk of systemic side effects when you do it topically. Okay. Because you're getting so little into the system, you're just targeting the follicle directly now. That's so interesting. So what population do you think that's most appropriate for? Is that like for your younger population? Like, cause there's probably different types of main, male pattern baldness. You've got the very aggressive one that hits youth, like the young guys. And then you also, pro- I'm, I mean, I'm imagining that as men age, like women, they might start to see thinning of hair later on down the road, or is that just a less aggressive form of the same thing? Yeah. I mean, for the vast majority of patients, it's a continuum, right? And so, as I said before, it could start right after puberty and you could be graduating high school with a thinning spot in your crown. That's not so good. So early treatment is the best treatment. Now, is every young patient ideal for finasteride? Maybe not. 
Could we use those topical minoxidils? Could we use red light therapy, laser light therapy, or PRP treatments? Sometimes mm-hmm. in those early stages, if you're not really sure if it's a maturing of the hairline or, or male pattern baldness, we would choose a non-chemical therapy. And treatments like PRP and laser therapy or photobiomodulation are very nice options. Nice. And we can track those patients very carefully. So the younger patient, obviously the opportunity is to protect their hair. Mm-hmm. So we want to be aggressive in doing something. Yeah. And then the question is, well, what is that something? And let, let's look at the risks and benefits. I have young patients on finasteride. I have old patients on finasteride. So it's a, it's a personalized one-on-one decision that we make to determine whether that medication is right for you. And if not, that's okay. Yeah. I got other tools in the toolbox. We yeah, can yeah. use TED. So we can use transepidermal delivery of peptides, get some mm-hmm. hair regrowth, maintenance and such. You know, We can do PRP treatments, which in my practice last about a year or so. So those are ways to really maintain the existing function of the follicles over time without dealing with the systemic side effects of medications. Yeah, no, I'm, that's that's so interesting because I've always like thought that the you know, the minoxidil and finasteride just had terrible side effects. So I guess it depends on, I mean, again, it's, you're saying what pretty much anybody in the biohacking kind of functional medicine space is going to say, it depends, like different yeah. people respond differently to the same treatment. And you, in the end, you're just sitting there trying to sort out what the best path is for each individual. Absolutely. And I think most people kind of run into trouble with the traditional minoxidils. So if we're talking about the other FDA-approved drug, minoxidil is a, di- a direct stimulator of hair growth and increasing blood flow. Um, most people think about Rogaine or generic medication like that that's over the counter. They're getting it at their supermarket or pharmacy. And that's usually a kind of a greasy, gooey mess or foamy mess. It just doesn't mm-hmm. really get onto the scalp so easily and it impairs the hairstyling. So there's compounded versions of that that we prescribe that are going to be not gooey, not greasy. Like 82M is a great formula that's a non-gooey, non-residue uh, prescription formula of minoxidil plus tretinoin, which is an enhancing agent. And so sometimes we'll do genetic testing to figure out, are you a good candidate for finasteride? Or do we have to use something even stronger? We have to consider mm-hmm. dutasteride, which I was mentioning the type 2 5-alpha reductase pathway, right? That type 2 is kind of that super highway to DHT that we want to block with finasteride. Well, there's another kind of service road uh, that <laughs> swoops around, if you catch my analogy, that yeah. also makes DHT. And that's the type 1 5-alpha reductase, which is more uh, prominent in the scalp, actually. And the other medication, dutasteride, blocks both of those. Wow. Wow. That's really So it's stronger. You know, there's a little bit more risk. And we can talk about that. But uh, sometimes we do that. So what do you mean uh, by it, risk? Because is it a topical again, or is it just so much stronger that it gets in? So dutasteride is not FDA approved for hair loss in this country, although it is approved in Japan and South Korea. Dutasteride is approved for prostate enlargement, has a similar mechanism of finasteride, just works stronger. So if you take that medication, you're going to lower the DHT down 90%, wow. much farther than with just the uh, finasteride alone. But side effects almost double. So they go from 1.8% to 4.8%. And um, the other issue is that dutasteride, if you're taking it orally and you've developed a steady state, let's say, it could take weeks to get out of your system because of the long half-life. So some people are concerned about that. um, But that also might be beneficial to some patients because that means maybe once you're at steady state, you don't need to take it every day. You can actually take it in uh, less frequent dosages. And so there's a lot of discussion in the world of hair restoration. Should I be taking dutasteride at what dose? 
Mm-hmm. Should I be taking it with finasteride overlapping if I'm transitioning? Because it's going to take some time to build up in the system, just like it would take some time to come out of the system. Right. And then should I be taking it once a week, twice a week, three times a week, daily? So there's a lot of questions. Yeah. And so patients always ask, like, well, how do we figure this out? Well, the mm-hmm. answer is treat, track, and monitor. And that's one of the things that we do very well at Bauman Medical is that we're doing so many different measurements we can tell exactly how your treatments are working given enough time. So yeah. we, we start an intervention in 90 days, we'll come back and repeat the measurements. Mm-hmm. And so we're not waiting for your hair to grow out. That takes a whole year. We're yeah. going to know in quick order within 90 days, we're going to know what's working and where and how much. Yeah. And what's not like what you're yeah. trying to mitigate. Today's sponsor is obsessed with mitochondria and their impact on how we age. Their research has shown that by supporting mitophagy, the process that our bodies use to reduce damaged mitochondria and make healthy ones, we can protect cells from cellular decline. Even more exciting, their research shows that supporting mitophagy in older adults, they were able to significantly improve muscle health and performance in just two months. And we can all agree that improving muscle performance and health is critical to longevity and healthy aging. So how did they do this? 10 years of research by the folks at Timeline Nutrition has resulted in the discovery of urolithin A, the active compound in MitoPure, a revolutionary supplement offered to you in three different forms that gives you a therapeutic dose of urolithin A. A delicious vanilla protein shake, my personal favorite, a berry powder you can add to yogurt and smoothies, or convenient capsules for travel. I personally love the three-month trial that allowed me to try all three of these. Within just two months, I could feel my gym workouts getting easier and my body responding to the effects of those healthier mitochondria. To try MitoPure for yourself, just go to timelinenutrition.com forward slash nat10 and use code nat10 to save 10% off your order. And now let's get back to the show. So, okay. So back to the thing, the reasons why boys lose hair. So then beyond that, it's going to be pretty much the same list as women. I mean, other than childbirth. Uh, Correct. That would be interesting. I mean, you know, having a new baby in the house can disrupt your sleep and your diet and your lifestyle. So maybe could make you stressed, but. And you know, we're in a brave new world. So, you know, I think (laughs) men can have babies now, I think, according to the, you know, those folks. I must be getting old because some of that stuff is getting to me. (laughs) Yeah, understood. So, but you know, there are risk factors, right? So, um, for young men, things that boost testosterone, like even just heavy workouts, like a lot of our athletes are doing strength training. They may be supplementing with creatine. These are yeah. things that are known to boost natural testosterone levels. And creatine was tied down uh, through a bunch of, uh, actually a couple clinical trials to increase DHT levels. No way. So, yeah. So, uh, huh. you know, we have to talk to our, our athletes or, or, you know, junior athletes or college athletes about, you know, what are the things that they're putting in their body that could be affecting their hair? And is it worth it? You know, and that's, a, mm-hmm. again, another personal decision. Do you want to stop your creatine, which maybe you're getting some good effects from, you know, pumping out, and you know, in the gym, but uh, it's also knocking out your hair. Yeah. Like, well, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's number one, what's the goal? And I think, you know, there was um, there was a post in my community recently by a woman whose 16 or 17 year old son wanted to know what supplements he could use to grow his muscles bigger and faster. And, you know, the answer that came from me and actually, interestingly, from the overwhelming majority of the community was at that age, you don't need anything. You need to eat the right diet. You need to get your butt into the gym. You need a decent routine. Yeah. You don't totally. Yeah. Maybe a whey protein shake. 
my 19 year old, uh, you know, this past year put on like 30 pounds of pure muscle just by hitting the gym, you know, without any extra, well, he had to eat a little bit more, but without any extra supplementation or anything. So yeah, you're right. I mean, he, I mean, you know, uh, that's the average, uh, 50 year old is not going to be able to do that. You know, no, Um, it's impossible. So yeah, so that, so lifestyle and nutrition and all of that is important for men too, you know, and there's obvious risk factors. I mean, you know, your audience are not smokers and such, but you know, smoking is terrible for that basal constriction of the scalp. And so often we see that related to hair loss. Um, That's interesting. But there's other, but there's medications that can trigger hair loss as well. And in a younger age category it could be Accutane. Uh, there's a oh, lot of hair loss associated with it, uh, you know, for acne, obviously. And then, um, you know, as we get older, people are on blood pressure medication. They're going to be on perhaps a statin medication. They might be on a mood modulator. I mean, we're talking about the general public here, you know, maybe not again, the biohacking audience, but, you know, uh, in, in my practice, I see a lot of patients that come in who are on a statin, a blood pressure medication. They're on uh, mood modulators oh, and uh, you know all of those things are terrible for your hair they're just awful that's so interesting and that's so i mean it's so sad right because you and especially like the mood modulators when they're used as that the first line of defense like you know there's a place i think for almost any medication out there but unfortunately yeah. it gets used as the only strategy and people just lean on these things so heavily and then just well, they're not, again, it's the same problem with hair. They're not finding a specialist. I mean, if you're talking yeah. to your primary care doctor about depression, his knee-jerk reaction is, oh, you need to be on this, blah, 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 you know, yeah. and he's putting you on an antidepressant, like, before you even walk out the door. He didn't discuss anything with you about your sleep or your activity level or your aspirations or what have you. You know, it's just like going to a dermatologist for your hair loss. They're not going to do a deep dive. They're yeah. not even going to measure your hair. They'll look at you sometime from across the room and think, oh, yeah, you're fine. <laughs> and that happens to so many of my women that come in through the practice. They're like basically dismissed yes. by their local dermatologist. And it's like, you know, they're like almost shoot out the door. Like, what are you complaining about? That's yeah, terrible. You is. know, because hair is an important uh, item in terms of a, you know, our emotion. You know, how we look and how we feel is, are very, very closely tied to our hair and our skin and things like that. Oh, I was going to say that uh, as the patients age, let's say into their 30s, 40s, and 50s, then as their te- natural testosterone levels are declining today, there are things that we're doing to replace or optimize hormone levels. Mm-hmm. So very often, if you're overdoing it with testosterone replacement, and this can happen in women as well, whether it be with pellets or injections or creams or things, um, you could boost up that testosterone and now it's accelerating conversion to DHT, you can be triggering some hair loss. Yeah. And so I have female patients postmenopausal who are on hormone replacement therapy with pellets. They've been, you know, overdone, overdone, let's say what we call stacked with testosterone pellets and it aggressively destroyed their hair. Yeah. And we have to kind of just wait for those pellets to dissolve yeah, the in the body. Yeah, pellets are a disaster. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, there's some nuance like with yeah, anything, sure. right? And so for some people who can't do give themselves injections or do creams or things like that, you know, a pellet is a very, very nice way to replace hormones. But um, you've got to do it carefully. You can't overstack it. Or you let's have a discussion with that patient or let's measure their hair before they go on hormone optimization right. therapy. Right. And the men too, they don't realize that, you know, they're talking to their uh, HRT doctor and, you know, yeah, juice it up, let's go. And there's no upper limit. And then we hear that at the conferences all the time and that's all fine and good. And for maybe, you know, 90% of folks, it's okay. But there's a percentage of people 
we're going to be super sensitive to that little bit of extra DHT and it's going to knock their hair right out. And so sure. a lot of, a lot of men come in, you know, in that age category and say, you know what, this hair loss really started when I started my hormone optimization therapy. Yeah. And so at Bauman Medical, there's a lot that we can do to help protect the hair during those uh, times in our lives where we may opt for some kind of optimization, whether it's nutraceutically or, or pharmacologically. Yeah, no, and that's that's so interesting. But I mean, you know, what you keep saying over and over again, which is so true, it's finding the sweet spot. What I meant by the pellets that are a disaster is I've just seen a lot of people who maybe they didn't get assessed properly, they overdo it, and now you're stuck. Like you're stuck oh, for yeah. the, the, the life of the pellet, and, and it just yeah. takes away any... It's almost like people should be doing, if in an ideal world, you, you use a different strategy until you figure out the dosages and then you move to yeah. the pellet, which makes it easier at a consumer level. So let's, yeah. um, so we, you know, as we said before this podcast, we could film many podcasts today, but let's, um, let's talk a couple more of the innovative strategies that you use in your clinic. I think a lot of people have like the regenerative stuff, like the PRP, the stem cells. We talked about PDO grow. We didn't talk like, about that yet. No, we didn't. So um, no, we talked about it before. Yeah, that's earlier, what I mean. right. We want to let everybody else in on yeah. the yeah, on that stuff. Yeah, so probably one of the uh, the largest areas of expansion in terms of knowledge and research and also therapeutics in the world of hair restoration is in regenerative medicine. And this is something that we saw starting 15 years ago, really when the orthopedic surgeons started to do stem cell therapy for joints and things like that instead of surgery right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And my background is general surgery and many of my friends are orthopedic surgeons. And I learned really the basics of regenerative medicine from them. I learned about cells and signals and scaffolds and things like that. Those are concepts that if you don't know those concepts, you can't apply the technology appropriately. And of course, in the beginning, we didn't really know how well PRP was working. We didn't know really how we should be creating the PRP. And sometimes we trusted those folks who are basically the vendors who had the devices and the kits. Mm -hmm. And um, that's unfortunate, but we did learn. Okay. So 15 sure. to 18 years later, uh, you know, we're 12,000 PRP treatments into this process. So now we kind of know um, that there's a dosing strategy, go figure. So create, <laughs> so that it makes a difference how you make the PRP. You can't just put it in a test tube and sit it in a salad spinner. That's not going to work. <laughs> not for hair. No. Okay. That might work for skin and actually some for wound healing because there are properties in platelet or plasma that do accelerate wound healing. And they've seen that or low dose platelets, which would be like one to two times concentration. Mm -hmm. But for hair growth, for stem cell mobilization, for new blood vessel formation, the data and the research is absolutely clear. You need 1.5 billion platelets per cc. That's wow. 1.5 million platelets per microliter. And so how do you know? Well, mm -hmm. you've got to measure it. Mm -hmm. So our PRP treatments are done with a large blood draw. And when I mean large, it's just one syringe, but it's not a little test tube. Sorry. It's going to be a little bit more. Feels the same as one test tube. So you don't yeah. have to worry. Just don't look. Um, You'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's not a big deal, to be honest. And then that gets separated in dual spin PRP process. So that's one of the critical steps. Getting rid of the red blood cells first before you start to separate out platelets. And that's what helps preserve platelet concentration. So our final PRP is going to have maybe six to eight times concentrate of what your normal blood level of platelets were. So that's going to be that sweet spot, 1.4 to 1.6 million per microliter, which is really where we want to be. And we have enough of it, hopefully seven and a half cc's worth 
to inject the scalp. And we're going to do that comfortably. So you're going to have a ring block of local anesthetic, which takes just a few minutes. That's comfortably applied while you're sucking on the nitrous oxide if you want, up to you. Yeah. Uh, so it's a real comfortable process. It takes about an hour. And uh, we're going to do that procedure to process the PRP. We're going to add some kind of scaffold to it, whether it be a biologic scaffold, uh, like a perinatal biologic material from years ago, or more, m- more frequently today, we're going to use PDO, polydioxinone which are the little tiny threads in the scalp. That's a synthetic scaffold. So that potentiates so that's the like effect a of the physical, That's a physical, like when you say scaffold, this is not like a theoretical term. This is like a physical no. something for those platelets to kind of hang on to kind of thing. Yeah, your body is going to work on scaffolds. So think of scaffold like in, in the most, uh, you know, largest sense, like if you had a hernia repair and they had to put a mesh, you know, to hold uh, the, you know, to hold the hernia in. Well, the mesh is a scaffold that the body is going to hopefully reabsorb over time and Mm -hmm. turn into uh, natural uh, biologic tissue. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, the scaffolds that we use today are basically derivatives of those same types of slow absorbing suture materials that were available and FDA cleared probably like 40 years ago. So you may have heard or your audience may have heard about the use of little tiny threads into the skin to stimulate mm. collagen and things like that. You know, practitioners sometimes, um, you know, compare that to surgery. Obviously, it's not going to have the same effect as surgery. But anyway, the point is, is that those threads do something. They have a biologic effect in the skin. They generate collagen, the new blood vessel formation, release of growth factors. The skin looks better. No question about that. So why is that? It's the growth factors that are being released in that mm-hmm. zone to anti-age and regenerate the skin. So that's a scaffold that we place in under the skin called polydioxinone in a process that includes a PRP. So PRP plus PDO, that's called PDO Grow. And I was the first to do that in the United States. Um, I didn't invent it. Uh, I learned about it through my colleagues from the Far East who said, hey, you may want to take a look at this. (laughs) I I was pretty skeptical. I did some of the research. I looked at the clinical trials. I found some colleagues over there in India and South Korea who were doing it. And I said, hey, is this working? And show me how to do it. We learned it. We did it. We did, we did it for the first time in the U.S. about six years ago. Wow. Yeah. So that's so, your level two PRP that you were talking about, taking PRP yeah, to the next level, basically. Correct. So our basic PRP is pretty darn good. We get about a 30% improvement in hair mass over the course of about 10 to 14 months. And we can get, with the use of the PDO, the threads, we get about a 20 to 50% improvement over that and a 20 to 50% improvement in the duration of the length of the effect. So not only just a year, but maybe even up to two years in some cases wow. to get the hair growths, which is really nice. But those treatments have to be repeated over time. And everybody's different because everybody's uh-huh. hair loss is different and all these risk factors and genetics are different. So it's a- Yeah, so I was gonna, I was just thinking like, so for, for these different treatments, Obviously, you have different populations that this is going to be appropriate for, like somebody who's got a problem, a DHT problem, which is a systemic issue with the body at- essentially attacking the hair mm-hmm. follicle. You can't just do like a PRP level two or level 10 on its own, because isn't the body just going to go with the hair follicle anyway? Well, you know, what's interesting is that many of these treatments that don't influence the DHT are very powerful. I mean, look, you know, I mean, just think about minoxidil for a moment. We don't have to get crazy with the regenerative treatments, but minoxidil is a very powerful hair growth treatment uh, that when it's applied either topically or orally or both, 
can really diminish the effects of that DHT. So mm. if you push hard enough on the follicle, you can overcome that negative influence. Interesting. Okay. With some exceptions, but there are some <laughs> patients that need that need to address the DHT. Look, if you take out the most powerful treatment out of your toolbox, right? So male pattern hair loss, young guy, aggressive hair loss, and we say, no, we don't want to use finasteride. Well, then we better be ready to really apply a variety of other therapies because, you know, we're not affecting the DHT. Okay. So you've you know, just or we've got to figure yeah. out, you know, maybe a nutritional supplement like a salt palmetto supplement, you know, a very good quality salt palmetto can work similar to that finasteride without the systemic side effects. Right. So by blocking the alpha, yeah. right. So it is, it is possible, you know, to address androgenetic alopecia without working with anti-androgen therapy. It's just a much tougher battle. You're, it's a much steeper hill to climb. Yeah, no, I get you it. Better well, bring you, some friends. You gotta bring, you gotta bring in the big guns. Yeah, bring um, in the soldiers. Bring in the army. You know, bring in the, bring in the, the bring, bring in the troops. Yeah, no kidding. So you mentioned something earlier, and I think the, um, the people with the sharp ears will have picked up on it and be curious about this, and that's nitric oxide and the mm. and the role of nitric oxide and how you're using it and integrating it into your different therapies. And I remember when. It, well, I was sitting next to Nathan Bryan at the Biohacking University, and I know you guys were chatting. And so he's making supplements that are systemic that in, improve the body's production, if you will, of nitric mm -hmm. oxide. Um, yeah. But you talked about it as people in in inhaling nitric oxide while waiting for their freeze or not? No, two nitric different oxide. things. Okay. Two different things. So oh. nitrous oxide is the anesthetic. So oh. that's the anesthesia <laughs> that you take. So nitrous oxide, you yeah, breathe yeah, yeah. it. And that's the old, you know, like when you're in high school, maybe your friends did whippets. Um, right. You know, it's also what anesthesiologists use to knock you out. Okay. Um, in the office, nitrous oxide is used for patient comfort and as an anxiolytic, which basically reduces your anxiety, right? Got it. So that's completely different molecule no than nitric yeah. oxide. Nitric oxide is a, is a gas. It's also a gas. It's a signaling molecule in the body, and it's used by mitochondria. It's used to kill invaders, infections, and parasites. Um, and it's also used to dilate blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And you know, Nathan and I go, you know, back a number of years through the A4M, and uh, you know, of course, nitric oxide as your um, audience knows is a Nobel Prize winning discovery and its relationship to cardiovascular medicine, I mean, is, is, is groundbreaking. And uh, one of the most important discoveries for cardiovascular medicine, you know, in the history of medicine, I think. And yeah. we know that without blood flow, you're not going to get organ function, mm -hmm. um, you know, and you're not going to get wound healing. And so as a surgeon, you know, I'm a little bit selfish. <laughs> I want your wounds to heal, right? <laughs> and so even if we apply hyperbaric oxygen, well, if the blood flow to that area is not so good, um, it can be very difficult to heal that area, even with uh, adjunctive hyperbaric oxygen. So getting blood flow to any wound, to any organ, to any follicle, in my opinion, is critical for hair growth. And so I'm a big advocate of nitric oxide and nitric oxide replacement because I feel like there are a number of different things that are affecting our nitrogen intake and the use of nitrogen in our bodies. And as you, you know, I don't have to give you the nitric oxide lecture, mm -hmm. but you can probably go listen to Dr. Brian explain it better. But we know that mouthwash and dysregulation of our oral microbiome disrupts that nitrogen cycle. We know that low acid pH in the, um, a low, yeah, low amount of acid in the, uh, in the stomach yeah. uh, can disrupt the absorption of nitrogen and that cycle. 
And so there's Even a genetics. lot of- yeah. yeah, and genetically, sure, and age, obviously, also, and For how sure. much we take in, you know, physically, you know, as we eat, how many, you know, beetroot vegetables and leafy greens, spinach, you know, can Popeye eat, you know, and why did he eat all that? <laughs> so, you know, all of those things that your grandmother told you are turning out to be true. You should eat your vegetables, right? <laughs> I happen, to, I, you know, I always get in a fight with my family because I love beets and nobody else does. So, oh, know, that's I, so I, I love I the love taste of beets. Too. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, so what we do in the practice is the following. So I have a very strong nitric oxide protocol. We test every patient at the time that they come in. Um, it's a signaling molecule, which helps mitochondria. So if you're going to do laser therapy, you might want to test your, you might want to test your nitric oxide level. Mitochondria also, as they improve, they're going to draw a lot of blood flow. So you want to make sure like if you're using laser light therapy to the scalp, I always feel this pulsation when I do laser light therapy, and I feel it's stronger when I'm doing the nitric oxide supplementation. So we can test nitric oxide in 10 seconds, as you know, you know, Mm -hmm. you swab the tongue and you push it together and boom, it tells you whether you're depleted or not. There's lozenges, there's capsules. And also in the practice, there's also powders. And then in the practice we've used for actually a number of years now, nitric oxide releasing gel. And so this is a two two pump gel. It's got two chambers and you, you squeeze it out. And that activates and releases nitric oxide right at the level of the skin. So we've been using that in our hair transplant patients. And I think it's having a very strong effect on blood flow in those areas and really accelerating wound healing. Interesting. I use that on my face. Yeah. So I have a family member who I will not identify who (laughs) has uh, had some acne and had an amazing response from the nitric oxide. Yeah, no, it's it's remarkable, right? And I mean, they talk about how it improves the, it's going to, because it, it vasodilates the microvasculature in the face, it's going to improve the penetration. It's a, not quite as powerful as as disrupting the, the stratus corneum, but it will improve the absorption of all those expensive serums and gels and whatnot that we apply. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's important. And, um, you know, as I said, every, as we said, every follicle has its own blood supply. So, and that's all microvasculature. So if we can dilate the blood vessels and enhance that, whether it be again, multi-targeting, right? Multi-therapy. So you've got laser light, red light therapy, which hits the mitochondria. You've got minoxidil either topically or systemically to dilate the blood vessels. And then you've got the nitric oxide to respond, you know, to make those blood vessels dilate even further. I think you're going to find improved hair growth. And that's what we've been seeing in our practice. So it's a really, really nice adjunct in the nutritional realm. And uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. Amazing. Well, you know, I kind of want to ask you about mitochondria and red light and all that. And yeah, we're coming up on time. So let's make that our last topic. Okay. Even though there's 27 other ones we could go at, but let's, let's talk about mitochondria lasers and red light. For sure. So red light therapy and laser light is on the tips of every, every biohacker's tongue these days because you see it all over the place and they're lasering everything, lighting up everything, as you know, <laughs> uh, from head to toe, right? Uh, and everything in between. But uh, in the practice, I've used laser light for, since 1998. It was the guy that originally sold me my first microscope for the scalp. And he said, hey, in Europe, you know, they're using light therapy for hair growth. I said, you, and he said, you need a laser. I said, well, I'm not doing laser hair removal. He says, no, hair growth. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And <laughs> I honestly told him, I don't think that's going to work. And so I was a big skeptic. He did lend me the device. It was a huge, big device that kind of came down over the patient's head and turned uh, like, almost like a big hair dryer. I mean, it was oh massive. My God. 
Yeah. Expensive device uh, imported from Sweden. And I was determined to show that it didn't do anything. But I'll tell you, the more patients we put under that and the more we put them under it, the more hair growth we were seeing. And it was just unbelievable. And, you know, to be honest, my colleagues didn't believe it either. And even after the data came out with the small handheld devices, they still didn't believe it. So it is what it is. Today, we've got, you know, double-blind randomized meta-analysis review studies that show red light therapy, it grows hair. So Mm -hmm. it's not a question. If you don't believe the meta-analysis, then that's a personal problem. That's not something I can fix. (laughs) Yeah, I can't fix that for you. So, you know, that's like the strongest level of research uh, analysis that you can have in the world, you know, that we know that's that's, that's the ultimate level. You know, it's not like one little, you know, case report, okay? Yeah, exactly. Um, And so... Uh, we we use red light therapy because, and again, in the early days, we didn't know the mechanism. But today, Dr. Michael Hamblin, the most well-published, most well-researched um, uh, um, researcher in the world of, of photobiomodulation, has detailed it out for us. So we know red light therapy hits the mitochondria at the electron transport chain. It's converted by the cytochrome C oxidase. That's the photoacceptor molecule that accepts the photons and some techno wizardry occurs and you get ATP and that's how that works. You know? So, um, but actually there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, modulated gene expression that occurs in the nucleus in response to red light therapy. And uh, it's a powerful treatment for wound healing, anti-inflammatory therapy, as well as a hair growth treatment. But I've got some caveats for you. Your regular LEDs that you see out there in the general marketplace are probably not powerful enough for hair growth. So it's the same thing as PRP. Mm. The weak PRP that's working for skin is not enough for hair, maybe not. And so we need a stronger PRP for hair. Same thing with laser light therapy for the scalp. And so when we took the laser cap and we redesigned it as the turbo laser cap, the Bauman turbo laser, we put over 300 diodes in it. We made it pack completely flat for travel. So you never leave home without it. Mm. And we made it treat from the hairline all the way through to the nape hairline in the back of the neck. So we could use it for wound healing and hair growth in all patients and for all comers size, adjustable, portable battery pack powered. That is the ultimate device. Even though in the office we still use the uh, the hair dryer format, <laughs> yeah, no, we don't use a hair dryer. That was from twenty five years ago. But we have other panel devices that are, um, you know, stationary before yeah. and after hair transplants, before and after any regenerative treatment, PRP included, before and after all visits that patients come in for wound healing postoperatively until they're healed completely, before and after TED treatments, the transepidermal right. delivery. So very, very popular. Um, laser light uh, devices that we have in the in the practice. They're running all day long. They've got 100,000 miles on it and they're still going strong. Yeah, but then the cap is something someone can take home. Like they can buy it from you and use it on a daily basis. Correct. Now be prepared. This is not the same price range as what you're going to get on Amazon. Okay, this is a medical device. FDA cleared for hair regrowth, so we're clear. Um, more diodes, more power than any other device on the market, more coverage and so forth. So, you know, for folks who are looking at the, uh, you know, the beauty budget, a typical device that you're going to find for, for red light or laser light on your scalp is going to be in the $1,000 range or maybe less. Um, a medical grade laser is going to be in the three to $5,000 category. And as you get into the top end, you get all those features. Mm-hmm. But look for one that has a lifetime warranty where, you know, obviously the manufacturer or the practice will stand behind it forever. Hopefully it's the last one that you need. Yeah. And if you calculate that over the course of time, you'll find that that may be one of your least expensive treatments right. as you amortize the cost. 
For sure. Yeah. Well, especially for someone, you know, it's one thing if you have an autoimmune condition, you get the you get that under control, you resolve the hair, you may not have to have ongoing treatments. And yet for some of the other conditions we talked about today, this is a lifelong process journey, yeah. actually. Correct. I guess can... And the, and the turbo laser, just to add in, uh, you know, Dave Asprey said it has more lasers than anything else he's ever seen in, in his <laughs> life. That's what he told me. And so he loves it. Um, Dr. Lana uses hers. She loves hers. Um, you know, and so Dave also healed faster and grew faster than any other patient in my practice in 25 years. And I've done over 13,000 surgeries. So, um, you know, he knows, he knows how to hack the healing process and red light was part of that as well as this hair growth process. Yeah. So it's not just a question of like putting your head down in front of your panel. You're going to need something a little more. Great. Yes. I mean, it'll help. I'm sure it's not a bad thing, but it's not going to give you the same results as a cap. Yeah. Patients ask all the time, you know, is my juve going to do it? Is it blah, blah, blah. And, and the bottom line is that there's a little bit of power there, but if you measured it, you're going to find that's just a trickle compared to what you really need. Yeah. So um, there's a certain amount of joules per centimeter square, which is a measure of energy that the cap delivers. And the cap is finely tuned by a team of engineers to deliver that adequate dose, the super dose, if you will, to get the hair growth going. And, and um, you know, I'm very, very confident. There's no other laser hair growth company in the world that has a physician at the head of it. That's Dr. Michael Rabin and his advisors who are engineers from MIT, uh, Dr. Hamlin from, uh, from Harvard and, and Mass General, uh, you know, and, and the photo medicine center, Wellman photo medicine center. I mean, it's just, there's no other team as well as the feedback from having used laser therapy for 25 years in the practice. Yeah. So the dream team, um, it's a great device. Yeah, no, it sounds like an amazing device. You know, it sounds like an investment, right? It's like so many things in the biohacking space. It's when you get into the better quality stuff, you're investing in your future, in your health, and it should give you many, many years of great service. So the, I, I know I said the last question, but about the cap, <laughs> does, it hit the, does it hit the brain at all? So does, it, uh, does it go through the, you know, so like the red, the red wavelength, 650, 630, 650, 670 nanometers don't penetrate all that well through bone, to be honest. Oh, perfect. Um, okay. But, rem- but remember that uh, red light therapy and, and Dr. Hamblin did this research. Um, this is the treatment that's used in stroke victims and TBI yeah. patients to improve blood flow. So some patients find that it's a relaxing effect when they use the red light. And I don't know if that's from visualizing the red light or if they're getting some kind of brain effect. I'm always doing it at night before bed. So I'm hopefully getting both benefits there. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I always shine the laser on the back of my finger just to kind of see that how far it goes, you know, and you can kind of see how far that red light does penetrate. And certainly the follicle is only a couple of millimeters under the right. skin. You know, it's, you know, it's extends from the, from the skin surface down uh, at a maximum about five to six millimeters at the most. And usually it's half of that okay. uh, because they're on an angle. Um, yeah. So you're really hitting a lot of hair follicles when you do a red light therapy over the top of the head, you know, like yeah. that. But um, I think for brain function, you need to go to Dr. Weber. He's from Germany and he makes some nice devices. I think also the Wavi people who do the, the portable EEGs are also making a, uh, a photobiomodulation device. And, um, you know, just a quick, um, you know, plug for my hobby. Uh, we take care of military veterans, a great team. It's a 501c3 here in Boca Raton, Florida. And uh, those folks who have had TBI or risk for PTSD related suicide do get great benefits from trans 
cranial photobiomodulation. So they're using these helmets and we're documenting the results of those treatments through research with Florida Atlantic University right here in Boca Raton. So uh, greatteam.org uh, is, is an amazing place if you want to help military vet U.S. military veterans and active service uh, military folks who are at risk. Um, great, great organization led by Carrie Reichbach, my good friend. That's awesome. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. So is that the part of the Bowman Philanthropic Foundation, which so I'm, seeing, I'm seeing in your background and anybody listening to the podcast isn't seeing that. So yeah, so Bowman Philanthropic Foundation actually started uh, with me and my wife. We've, we've done pro bono work for folks who have been injured in accidents, you know, whether it be, you know, eyebrow or eyelash trauma, you know, from car accidents or dog bites. Um, we also provide cranial prosthetics, uh, you know, for example, for a woman who was burned as a child mm -hmm. in a kitchen fire. And so those kinds of things we've always done for 25 years, but it was a number of years ago, we founded the 501c3 called the Bauman Philanthropic Foundation to provide those services uh, to those folks who need hair restoration and financially couldn't afford it. Yeah. And though there's an application process, if you know someone who's been injured, um, and lost their hair in some way, shape, or form. That would include sideburns or eyebrows, eyelashes. Uh, we've done reconstruction, reconstructive work for many, many, many patients through the through our my, my foundation. Uh, so that, and also we do a lot with education. My wife is a has a master's degree in education. She was a kindergarten teacher for many, many years. Just recently retired to enjoy her life. But um, you know, we have a passion for education and teaching and training. And so, Bauman Philanthropic is hair restoration with some education components to it as well. That is completely separate from me being the medical director of greatteam.org, which is a 501c3 specifically for military veterans and active military folk uh, who are at risk for PTSD related suicide. So, which is a big, big problem since the pandemic and obviously for increasing. Sure. So sure. picking up kind of where the VA left off, uh, we try to get these guys off of their medications that are, you know, dulling their mind and dulling their brain so to speak, and uh, getting them back to a healthier lifestyle. So we bring in all the biohacking materials that you can imagine, couple that with nutritional guidance, one-on-one -on -one training. We body scan them. Um, we provide mindfulness and meditation and everything from Qigong to acupuncture and hyperbaric oxygen to far infrared sauna, photobiomodulation, a PEMI, a VEMI. So we do a lot of pulse electromagnetic field for them as well. Yeah. And uh, a lot of social support. So there's a billiards table there too, you know, and Love cookouts it. when you, uh, on Memorial Day. But um you know, that's, that's where I dedicate my time. Um, and uh, you've got some really nice big events. So if there's any vendors out there that you might be, that might be listening uh, who want to get involved to help U.S. military veterans, certainly we would love their help. And we've had great support from the biohacking community. We use BrainTap. We use Happy. We use the... Um, well, the uh, PureWave you just mentioned. Yeah, Pure Wave, uh, you know, donated their their uh, both beds, the PEMI and the VEMI, um, you know, many uh, many others, and you know, some of the veteran organizations are donating coffee and other things as well. But um, uh, you know, the photobiomodulation from Weber in um, in Germany, the Theralite. Uh, we've also talking to other companies in that uh, realm as well. So, uh, Sunlight and Far Infrared Sauna. All, all have stepped up and donated everything at no charge to those military veterans that need um, that kind of help. And so I'm thankful for them. And of course, gratitude is my favorite biohack. So I'm, I'll put a little thanks out to all those folks who are deeply involved with, with Great Team. Those are, those are my people. Well, that sounds amazing. And that is, I think, a beautiful place to 
maybe bring our conversation to a close, seeing as it is the middle of your workday and probably there's somebody waiting for you on the other side here. So yeah. Dr. Bauman, thank you so much for this. And hopefully people caught that you also do eyebrows and eyelashes, which we can talk about another day. Um, any hair that needs to, um, that should be there, that isn't there anymore. So maybe we can just finish with how people can find you and work with you or reach you or maybe work with someone you've trained. And also there will be an offer for the audience in the, in the show notes, but in the meantime, let's just finish with you. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, for uh, any men or women out there who are struggling with a hair loss condition, whether you're just starting to see the signs or you've decided that now's the time you want to do something about it to get things back in order and to get your hair to stick around, to enhance, maintain, or restore your hair, we can treat you from across the globe. Nearly 50% of my patients start out connecting with me virtually. So the best way is a virtual consultation. You can request one at baumanmedical.com, B-A-U-M-A-N, for those who can't see the, the, uh, the lower third there, <laughs> um, baumanmedical.com, and you can just click on schedule consultation and it'll guide you. If you're local to South Florida or you happen to be visiting or you know you're going to be in the local area, we're halfway between Miami and, um, and Palm Beach, so we're on the east side of the state. And uh, we'd be happy to see you in person. We can do a lot more investigative diagnostics and measurements, obviously, if you're here. But as I said, many patients connect with me virtually at baumanmedical.com. You can also find me and DM me on just about every social platform that you can imagine. <laughs> it's at Dr. Alan Bauman. If you want to take a look at some of the things on my personal side or at Bauman Medical on Instagram. But, um, you know, I'm happy to chat with anybody. And if you just want to ask a question, you can go to baumanmedical.com slash ask. And just ask away whatever questions you have about hair loss, hair restoration, transplants, or any of the regenerative technologies we've talked about. Uh, I look forward to helping you and uh, giving you a brighter day ahead. Wow, that's amazing. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Dr. Bauman. This has been amazing. I'm so glad we had this time together. Well, thanks so much, Natalie. I really appreciate it. And I hope your audience appreciates it. Oh, I think they will. I'm sure they will. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.